This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein at Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. Whether you're listening to us via the podcast or you're listening live on your radio, we very much appreciate your time. You've got an hour of science ahead of you now, and in the studio with me is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, sir. Good morning. You well? I am well. How are you? I'm good. That's and good. Uh, the dancing one next to you, Dr. Jen. <laughs> Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm a bit disappointed. It's mandatory to dance in here. Didn't you guys know? Did you miss the memo? When that music comes on, it's boogie time. I'm the just trying music. to focus. What, what music? <laughs> After 26 years, I don't hear the music anymore. Well, like, Dr. Shane, you need to just, you know, yeah. re, re, uh, what's the word? Reacquaint. Yeah, reacquaint. I don't know. Just get Actually, excited, I will say, mate. there's the odd occasion where I'm in my car and there'll be an advertisement of some type you know, a promo for our yeah. show, <laughs> yeah. and I'll be like, hold on, hang on, <laughs> it should be somewhere else. It's what about the heart rate goes up. Totally freaks me out. Where am I meant to be? Yeah, Is yeah. it the right time for Chris maybe to do a remix of the, oh, yeah. of and the Chris song? Chris Chris You're the musician here. If, if someone can get me, uh, you know, what's the, the after legal coverage, hell yes. I would very, <laughs> I would very happily. Let's make it happen. That. Didn't we a discuss remix. that once, whether we should have yeah. a new theme song, theme song? We all said, no, no, we like the 20 Yeah, yeah, there was a, there was a suggestion by the team member, uh, by a team member. Who shall remain nameless. Who shall remain nameless. Um, no one remember the team. We, we, we killed that person off. Um, literally. <laughs> Because they suggested changing the theme. I'll tell you what. So what wouldn't be crazy would be occasional sort of seasonal yeah, uh, mixes. Yeah. Oh, the seasonal Christmas mix. Version. Yeah, quite, yeah, I quite like that idea. Yeah. Oh, Christmas oh. album. I can feel a Christmas album coming on. <laughs> I, I reckon I might do that. That might happen. As disturbing as this conversation is, let's talk about some science. <laughs> what? That's not. Doctor Ewan, you're, I know you're disturbed by some polar bears and penguins hanging out. Yeah, we won't mention the, uh, the slight what? problem with polar bears and uh, penguins on ABC's website this week. But, uh, <laughs> don't, I just they, did. don't they hang together? No. No, they don't. They're a long way apart. And even if, um, you know, climate change just sort of break up parts of the ice and so forth, they'd have to get past the tropics and that would be a long haul, I reckon, for an iceberg before it got the mm. other end. But uh, those, anyway. penguin, those penguins are fast swimmers, though. It's a, hell yeah. of a, it's a hell of a migration for a flight. It's, it's, it is. It's a long <laughs> migration. Yeah. Couldn't they just climb on the yeah. back of a whale? I mean, the polar bears would be the big winners, right? I mean, oh, that's yeah. a pretty good, nice feed there. I mean, yeah. yeah oh, yeah. But anyway. Well, because it's bite size. Yeah. Anyway, speaking about predators, I couldn't go past this story this week, which was about dingoes uh, and some research that was in the Streslecky Desert of New South Wales, and it was published in the Royal Society Interface Journal. And as we all know, predators have wide-ranging effects on a whole range of species in the mm. environments they occur. But what they've shown is that it appears that dingoes are actually changing dune morphology. And the way this works is they compared sites inside and outside the dingo barrier fence. So the dingo barrier fence, just for people, is about 5,500 kilometres long. It's one of the longest structures in the world, and mm. it excludes dingoes basically from southeast Australia, the more productive sheep country, and the outside of this dingoes. Having said that, they still have to control dingoes on the inside as mm. well. The, hu- the humorous part of me wants to say it's so long you can see it from space. Apparently, you can see it from the Great Wall of China. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you can see yeah. fake, fake news. I think fake that news. One. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway. What they showed was that uh, on the inside, of course, where there are less dingoes, there's more foxes and cats. And what they do, is they get really stuck into eating things like hopping mice, which are granivorous uh, little rodents, and they eat these seeds of particular plants, shrubs, in the arid zone. And 
what that means is that uh, when you have less of those uh, mice, you have more of the seeds and you have more of this vegetation growing and that traps and changes the, uh, traps sand and changes the way that wind moves across the, the arid mm. system mm. and you get these taller, steeper dunes. On the outside where the dingoes are still there, you have less of this vegetation and lower dunes. So it's pretty cool. So they use drone technology to fly over these um, paired sites, so with or without dingoes, inside outside the dingo fence basically, and they looked at dune morphology. They looked at, of course, the presence or absence of dingoes foxes, cats, hopping mice, and they showed a clear difference. So mm. wow. I think that's pretty amazing because yeah. it's, I mean, some of us might know about the Yellowstone example, of course, where they had wolves and then the wolves came back and it sort yeah. of transformed things, including the hydrology of the system. Mm, so it yeah. went from really sort of fast-flowing <clears throat> rivers to slower rivers and partly because beavers came back as well. But this kind of shows as well that dingoes potentially could have uh, an effect mm. on not just species but actually geomorphology, which is a terraforming. pretty amazing. Yeah, it's wow. it's pretty amazing. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Super cool stuff. Who knew? Yeah. Mm. Who knew? Yeah. Apex predators, you got to be uh, respectful. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Dr. Jen? So, so moving to something quite, quite different, I found a paper this week that uh, the researchers wrote about a topic which they termed socially desirable strangulation. Oh, what the? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, so, just, I'm thinking there are, there are so many places I'm not going to go. No, yeah. no, don't go there. But, but where we are going to go is pretty cool. So basically these researchers were concerned about the health effects of people wearing ties, you know, business oh, yeah. ties. Yeah. And so they did this, this research. They had 15 healthy men. In fact, they had 30 healthy men. 15 of them were uh, asked to put on a tie to the point that it was, you know, quite tight, exactly <laughs> as they would wear to work. <laughs> and 15 of them didn't. And they scanned these healthy young men's brains using um, an MRI to see what happened. And it turned out that those men who uh, had to put the tie on and tighten it to the point, you know, the winds are not nice and yep. tight, so they looked very spiff and, you know, spicky and span and lovely and ready for work, had a 7.5% decrease in blood flow to their brain because the tie was compressing their jugular veins. Well, that explains a lot in my case. Exactly. I don't wear a tie anymore, but there was a period of my life where I wasn't productive. So all these people out there who are putting a tie on every day because it's socially acceptable, it's the norm, it's what they have Mm. to do, are actually causing themselves damage. So basically the researchers said, look, 7.5% decrease, while statistically significant, it's probably not going to do much, you know, not going to have any symptoms for your average healthy person. But if you already have high blood pressure or you are a little bit older or you are a smoker then you're likely to be suffering from nausea dizziness headaches and the point is that long term a reduced blood flow to the brain is actually responsible for things like alzheimer's yeah so basically they've said are we really sure that we want to have a huge proportion of our population doing themselves long-term damage because there's this cultural norm that they're meant to wear a tie surely surely this is just one small thing that i mean important but it's one more factor that you you rope into learning how to tie a tie you try to put where you're cutting (laughs) off blood flow yeah you know maybe that's not right you know well but i guess their argument was that it's not particularly tight to have this effect right okay Mm. um and research already came out 15 years ago to show that you're at increased risk of the eye disease glaucoma if you wear a tie because it's wow. increasing the pressure in your eye. And it's your shirt so, collar size as well. Yeah, exactly. That's the shirt collar yeah, is totally. really the limiting factor because if you're over-tightening... Anyway, we could get into fashion. So the point of the article wasn't to say, you know, you, you have to... To be at the point of feeling like you're being strangled for this to have an effect. Yeah, sure. If you just wear a tie in the socially acceptable way that's yeah. quite tight, mm. quite firm, 
you're not noticing it unless you have other health problems, but you are actually mm. putting yourself at risk. Did, so did they're I, suggesting that people should just stop wearing ties. Did yeah. they control shirt type though? Because that's really important because I, I had to wear a tie for school in high yes. school every yes. day. So did I. And, yes. But it wasn't, it wasn't overly tight, whereas there's other shirts yes. I've got, and I'm sure Chris and, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. and um, yeah, Shane are the same. European cup. Even just when you put that final button on, you feel oh. like you're being partly choked, let alone I'm the tie. Sense, what's, so I, one, I of think, these, one of the things that interests me about you're this wearing is the wrong size. No. <laughs> there's a certain cut of shirt. Come yeah, on, there, I'm there with is. me. Yeah, so too much sizes, weight lifting. Yeah, the size one and cut is the other. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. I'm interested that they that I'm wondering what triggered the interest. Whether they were sort of just yeah. angry because people that you know told them what to do and affected their budget wore ties. <laughs> so they, Let's get back at middle these, management. These people are idiots. There's something wrong with them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether someone made them wear a tie and they were grumpy about that. Yeah, I don't See, know. I, I stopped wearing ties for a very different reason. That was when when the aliens come. I knew it was the one thing I wouldn't be able to explain. <laughs> like they looked at and go, "What's with that?" And I'd be, "I don't know." That's the only the thing you, you could explain. Yeah, pretty really? much. Really, the rest would be okay. Yeah, it's be okay. It's just tired. I, I like, think of so many things I would struggle to explain <laughs> adequately that, yeah. that we do. Yeah, like, that we choose like, to do. Bottled, bottled water would be a yeah. good one, I think, to explain. Yeah, yeah. bottled water or yeah. T- take yeah. me to your leader. And if it's not a dog, because we're picking up yeah. after them, yeah. yes, they would challenge us. As yeah, being what's wrong with you? Lying. <laughs> Obviously, the dogs are in charge. Really? You're picking really? up their excrement. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, another good reason to just dump your tyres and dump tell your boss. Yes, totally agree. Uh, if you want me to function and have full brain capacity, and you I'm say, so my, wear a tie. I wear ties infrequently. Um, I'm and sure. When, I've never seen you wear a oh tie. My, oh, my God. When I do, I, you know, as is this you, do you mean you. around your neck? I mean, I can imagine you with one around your head. Thigh, waist, head, yeah. and neck are all <laughs> yeah. options. Excuse me, he was just telling us before off air how damn hot he looks. I am smoking hot in a tie. That's, I think that's a reasonable <laughs> assertion. But the thing is, it's, but when I, when I get frocked up to that extent, I don't need to think. I'm not doing it because I'm doing uh, yeah, it. Yeah, I'm yeah, there you to, just look need to look right. good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'll lose seven percent of my of my brain function yeah. for yeah, a but, period but, of time. But let's imagine, you know, that perhaps there's a doctor performing some fairly yeah, important no, task, or cool. a lawyer who's trying to get <laughs> right, you. You know, right, like there yeah. are, there are times when oh, people yeah. are wearing tyres who yeah. actually have to use their brain to full capacity. Yeah, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Good no. call. Yeah, because if you took seven percent, I don't care what you do when you have a tie <laughs> yeah. on, Chris. But other people, I don't do. I don't do any work that's load load bearing in any case. It's okay. Seven percent off, Chris. I'm. Right? <laughs> it varies that much just week to week. I'm just thinking, I, I reckon, no, I reckon the contrary. I reckon it's so, I'm so close to the line. That could be a critical 7%. <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm with Chris. He's borderline at the best of times, yeah, so we're going to lose 7%. I feel an experiment coming on. <laughs> yeah. what's, that, what's that line? I remember that line by Lux Luthor from the original Superman movie where he said something like, it's amazing his brain can generate enough electricity to keep his legs moving. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah, anyway. Like okay, Chris, next What's time going? you come in, hi. Mm. <laughs> you know, speaking of loss of loss of cognitive ability, I was about to skip you and do my news, but I realised you haven't had a go. Go, Chris. Your undies are too short and tight. Um, <laughs> it's not wearing a tie, it's going to do something else. Um, look, um, uh, just very quickly, I uh, people may or may not be aware, and uh, arachnophobes should be aware, uh, that spiders, you know, can, can crawl and they can jump, um, but they can also develop uh, essentially... Airborne transport. Um, they've actually set out these long strings of spiders. Sort ballooning, of it's called. Yeah, they can, they, exactly. It's like a, it, it's called ballooning. It's like a balloon, but it's they awesome. pick up, you know, air currents and they can fly, mm. you know, Great. like kilometers in the air. They can, they can cross oceans, um, which is, 
great for them. It's not great if you don't like spiders. <laughs> but the thing is, they don't do it all the time. Even ones that do it as, as part of their, of their, you know, behavior, it's not all the time. And this is one of the interesting things. Like, well, okay, so they need, they need breezes sort of below about 11Ks. That's the zone mm-hmm. for them. But even when the conditions seem to be right, sometimes the spiders sort of on mass go, okay, let's get out of here. But other times when everything looks the same, they just sort of hang out and don't move. So uh, a bunch of scientists who published this paper in current biology this week were thinking, OK, so what's the trigger here? There must be something else that's triggering them if we can't, if it's not just the, the wind and the air. Um, and the the hypothesis was that there was some interaction with electric currents in, in the Earth's atmosphere. Hmm. So they got some spiders and they got a lab and they removed all the electric currents and then they made a fake one, which they could turn on and off. Hmm. What they found is that when they turned it on, the spiders it, it responded to this. By, and this is so cute. I mean, I don't care how much you love or don't love spiders. When they're about to take off, they exhibit what's called the tiptoes dance, <laughs> <laughs> where they get up on the little toesies yeah. and get ready to take off. Really right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> No one can see your actions. But yes, they, that's how they do it. They get so, ready for the breeze to pick them up. It's kind of like a, like a pole vaulter, you know, when they, when they run, yeah. they look like they're running on the ends of their feet. Exactly. Yeah. So they get all, they get all ready yeah. for that. Maybe so this can, is how yeah. penguins got to the Arctic. Maybe. Maybe. They also, they also found that, um, that when you blow a breeze across these spiders, the hairs on them stand up, but nowhere near as dramatically as when you run an electric current. It's like fuel through yeah, them. Right. Then they go, wham, <laughs> So they're totally yeah. ready to go jumpy too. Huh. So the bottom line is, it seems like that might be a trigger for them. No one's exactly sure if that's 100% true, but also what it might do. But also there's questions about, well, maybe the electric fields have some influence on the actual silk. Mm. They can get mm. the silk spread out nicely yeah, and it helps the ballooning. Reasonable. So there may be some really interesting bits of um, of physics around why it is they can take off and why they choose to. But mm. once again, you know, spiders are smarter than us. Cool. Well, I just wanted to quickly mention something. Uh, this is uh, research done that was um, by Samuel Cushman, who's part of the US Forest Service, um, where they put GPS tags on a whole lot of lions because, you know, lion uh, conservation is pretty important. And one of the things that you need to make sure you manage correctly if you're doing this, is they have these sort of core habitat areas, then they have connections between these core habitat areas, and then they have connections with these means, you know, humans, right, that, mm. that cause problems as yeah, well. Yeah, sure. And so if you're going to model how to best deal with, you know, making sure that lions stick around, you have to bring all of this information in. So they did this um, quite substantial tagging process where they, they looked at the way lions were moving and these three factors. And what they found was they could actually identify, um, you know, nine very specific areas where, you know, the lions were hanging out a lot. And then they identified 27 corridors between these areas, which is, you know, if you think of nine areas and then 27 yeah, corridors wow. between them, it's quite a large number. Yes. And then they identified 27 hotspots where us naughty humans were causing, you know, some sort of conflict with the lions. Mm-hmm. And so by, by mapping this out, they can sort of now look at, okay, if, you, if you're going to plan the conservation strategy around where these lions are, these are the areas where you need to, Clever. I don't know, build a fence, build a corridor. Or just don't be. Or just don't be, um, because this is where the lion, you know, you can't sort of tell these lions, look, you know, if you go past that tree, <laughs> yeah. there's going to be some humans. Yeah. Like that doesn't work. So you've got, you've got to manage the structures so that you can do this. And it's, it's really interesting because, um, no, I, I didn't realize this, but no one has actually looked at a model with these three components in it 
at the same time before mm. to try and work out how to best do that wow. conservation, which it seems like something you would do, but I, I suppose it is. You've got to tag them, you've got to, you've got to monitor them over a long mm. period of time, and then you've got to look at that interaction, which is often There's quite damaging. a lot of damaging. information to go into. A lot that of information. Sort of and, and mapping that out. But it does mean that, you know, with that sort of information, you can, you can design scenarios so that you're less likely. I mean, you know, lions and humans need to sort of interact in similar spaces in certain countries of the world. And if you, mm. if you can't manage that effectively, someone gets killed, whether it be the lion or the humans, and it doesn't work. Mm. So, um, you know, they're part of the habitat. We need to coexist with them. So anyway, this was, I thought this was really interesting work. And, um, and it just goes to show, you know, how much we can do with GPS stuff these days. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. not just, it's not just working out, you know, where your Uber is. <laughs> so, <laughs> GPS is great. Anyway, we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with a student from uh, MLC and talking about a really amazing program that's coming up. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 R. In the studio with us now is a Year 12 student from Methodist Ladies College, better known as MLC, Betty Zhang. Welcome to R. How are you going? Thank you. I'm going really well. Thank now, you. you contacted me the other night via yeah. uh, some social media program that we won't <laughs> name, um, and you were telling me about this this MLC Neuro Day conference that you, I think you've been spearheading yourself, right? This is Yeah, a, along with some really awesome supportive teachers at school. Yeah, this is a big deal. So, I mean, first of all, tell us a bit about yourself. I mean, you're, you're in year 12, you're, you're interested in science. Yeah. Where's that going? So, I'm currently doing the International Baccalaureate Program yep. at MLC. Um, I love science, so I try to do as many sort of research, science communication things as I can. So at school, I've run a neuroscience club for three years now. Mm-hmm. I've done lots of work experience placements at all sorts of institutes in and around Melbourne. Um, I've did a research program in the US yep. over the summer. And I'm currently leading a group called the Victorian Student Science Squad, and we basically take over different public events in the city right. um, related to science. Right. And, yeah. No, that sounds fantastic. Now, tell us a little bit about your um, your time in the U.S. Because, I mean, not many students get to do that. What, yeah. what, what exactly did you do over there? Whereabouts did you go? So, that was a really extraordinary experience. I was on an assist scholarship, mm-hmm. and I got to attend Albuquerque Academy in New Mexico um, for one year. And during that summer holidays, I was able to go to Texas Tech, um, a program called the Clark Scholars Summer Mm -hmm. Program, and I got to do some neuroscience research for seven weeks. Wow. And is this, I mean, this program we're going to talk about in a moment is is about neuroscience. Is this Mm -hmm. the area you're sort of hoping to head into, or are you still sort of like, you know, you could still do physics or... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been really interested in neuroscience pretty much since my year 10 work experience placement and that was at the epilepsy lab at the Flory Institute Mm. and I think that was a pretty good start. I had a really awesome experience there and I sort of went on to do a lot more neuroscience related projects um, and it sort of just kicked off from there but recently I've been exploring 
lots more other areas of research and they're all super fascinating. Yeah. Well, neuroscience, I mean, there's, there's no doubt neuroscience is cool. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> I, I think it, it's, that's well, big of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. But, but in particular, because we're, we're entering a phase of neuroscience where we're learning a lot more about the Certainly. brain in ways that even 20 years ago, yeah. like we had our hands tied behind their backs, you know, so mm-hmm. functional MRI, all that sort of stuff is just, yeah. you know, you, you must have seen some of that. I mean, it's just exciting how much yeah. information we can get these days. The technological developments are really extraordinary. And I think um, that's also an area where Melbourne researchers are contributing to a lot. Mm. And it's awesome to see how much as technology has advanced, our understanding has basically advanced exponentially. And I think right now we're on like the cusp of just discovering a whole lot more about the brain than we've ever expected to know. Yeah, it's a com- complex beast. Now, tell us about the um, the, the Neuro Day Conference, because yeah. this is the thing you've set up, which sounds mm-hmm. sounds like it's going to be huge. Tell us all about yeah. that. So it's going to be a day-long conference. It's on the 21st of July, and all Victorian students and teachers are welcome. Mm-hmm. So we've got a keynote speaker who is... Dr. Sam John, a biomedical engineer from the University of Melbourne. He's working on the Stent Trode project. Oh, yeah, that's which, uh, it's great. Yeah, yeah that's mm. a really awesome thing that they're doing in terms of brain machine interfacing, you know, potentially controlling exoskeletons. Mm. Um, we've got 15 workshops, which students can choose to attend two of those. And they're all presented by um, some of the leading researchers in Melbourne from Lots of different institutes, lots of different universities. Um, the majority of our presenters are PhD students, so really young, mm-hmm. passionate science communicators. Yep. And all these workshops are going to be super engaging and interactive for students. And finally, on we have a panel discussion. So we have four speakers, a medical student, a PhD student, a professor, and an associate professor who are going to talk about their journey at different stages of their career and where they hope to go. Hmm. Um, and to wrap it all up, we have, we're open to students presenting some of their own posters and work as well. Hmm. Well, it's fantastic. And you have, um, one of my good buddies, Megan Munsey is going to be there as well. Yeah. I mean, I, people should go just for her. She's oh, awesome. Yeah. She's, been, <laughs> she's been on the show a few times, but she's one of the mm-hmm. best communicators about stem cell research and, and so forth that there literally is in the country in terms of science communication. So, yeah. um, that, that'd be great as well. In, in terms of, um, where people find the information and how other students get to go, mm-hmm. I mean, how, how does that work? What, what, what do yeah. they need to do? So you can go on the website mlc.vic.edu.au forward slash neuroday2018 and there you'll find more information about the workshops and also registration and booking and we've tried to keep the cost really low to $20 and it's going to be fully catered and we've basically got everyone volunteering and helping you out. As yeah, well. that's fantastic. Fully catered is great. <laughs> Fully catered. Yes. Chris might go. I'm very. It's, uh, it's why not? He, I mean, I'm looking at it. If he ends. does though, you need to give him a sl- twenty dollars. I've seen him eat. Yeah, <laughs> I will get every cent. And worth. that won't. Yeah. Um, that, that yeah, that won't work. So <laughs> you have to deal with people like Chris. Um, yeah. I just have to ask yeah. a quick question. It's awesome to hear your enthusiasm for science. Where, where does it come from? Like, what sparked your interest in science in the first place? Yeah, so I've always really enjoyed science class. And I think in year nine, when we were looking at work experience, I really narrowed down on what I really wanted to do. And medicine was always something that really interested me. And research was something I had had a lot about, but never had much 
opportunity to look mm. into until work experience. And then from then on, I just realized, wow, there's so much knowledge out there. There's so much, so many new discoveries being made. So different to what you learn in textbooks and mm. which can be really dry and boring. So <laughs> research. But you still enjoy that apparently though. Yeah, yeah good. Yeah. Um, but research is, you know, because of the uncertainty, because you're constantly grappling and debating that what theories are the best out there. How much do we know? How certain are we of this knowledge? Um, that sort of thing is what has always really captivated me. Yeah, look, cool. I feel like the future of science is in safe hands. Yeah, <laughs> but look, Betty, it's so good to have you come in here. It's, it's a real pleasure for us to, to get someone who is so young, and, and, and frankly, you know, your ability to communicate should be a major threat <laughs> to many of the scientists out there who aren't so good at it, uh, because this new this new sort of group that's coming through now, you know, uh, yeah. you, you guys, you, you're all giving talks when you're ten, <laughs> you know, which is something that many many of the researchers out there gave yeah. their first talk at a conference when they were thirty. Um, so you're going to have that completely different approach to science communication. Good luck with this event. Uh, tweet it out. We'll retweet it for you and, and share it on our Facebook site and so forth. Um, I hope you get a massive number of people there. Yeah. It's fantastic to, to mm-hmm. chat to you and, um, and good luck with your science yeah. career. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. We're going to take a break for some uh, important station announcements, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment to hear from a university, a Monash University researcher about a new planet that they've been looking at. Three, triple, Yeah, you are listening to Triple R. You're listening to a science show. If you've accidentally uh, tuned into us, uh, stick around. It might be fun. Uh, we've only got about 25 minutes to go. But in the studio with us now is Dr. Christophe Ponte. He is from the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University. Welcome to the studio of Triple R. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm good. It's um, you know, you're working in area. You know, I love this stuff around. Um, anything to do with astronomy gives me sorry. Yeah, I mean the guys. Really, yeah. really? really? Have you Shane? Yeah. When did that start? We never noticed Shane. Well, astronomy, like volcanoes. Um, yeah, there's a few things. Hydrology, that stuff. Anyway, um, now this this is interesting because you've been looking at an extrasolar sort of system, so not within our solar system, looking at another star, and you found some very interesting stuff with regards to one of these planetary disks that sort of, or you know, planetary sort of early formation areas. So talk us through. First of all, what these measurements are and what you've discovered. Yeah, so we we looked at a very young system, which is only like 4 million years old. Mm. So it's, it's a baby. Yeah, mm. it's a baby. It's 1,000 yeah. times younger than the sun. Yeah. And we looked at, uh, so when the star is forming, it's surrounding by a disk of uh, gas and dust. And we looked at the disk around the star and the, the disk is rotating. We looked at the rotation pattern of the star and we... We saw that the disk was not rotating as it should be, that there was something inside the disk perturbating the rotation, oh. and this thing has to be a planet. Hmm. So, so when we, if we think back to our solar system formation, I mean, every, everything sort of is in, in a plane, isn't it? Is that right? Yes. So, so you, you're seeing, you're, how do you see this plane? I mean, is this just luck that it's sort of side on to us? I mean, how do you, how do you see it? Yeah, so, so when the system is very young, the, um, there's no plane with planets, there's a, the disk that's mm-hmm. relatively thick, like mm-hmm. it has an aspect ratio of okay. 10%. Yep. So we're looking at the disk, and the disk is still very massive, much more massive than our solar system, and right. there's gas in the, the disk, and we're just looking at the gas through molecular lines, and by that we can measure the rotation 
and we can see if it's rotating as expected or not. And mm-hmm. in our case, there was a deviation in the velocity field, which told us that there was a planet. It's a little bit like if you have um, a little stream of water and you put a rock in the middle, it will generate a wave. What mm. we detected is a wave, and by seeing that wave, we know that there's a, a body inside the disk. Yeah. How, how long do these sorts of measurements take? Because I can't... I, I'm trying to get a feel for how fast this thing is rotating. Like, how long did you have to measure it before you realized uh, so that part so we, of it was out of whack? We, we, we don't see the, the planet or the moving. We just saw the velocity around the, the planet. It's a, so it's a, mm-hmm. like a Doppler effect. We yep. saw that there's something that's changing the frequency of the molecular line. Mm-hmm. So you've got this, this disk of, of dust and gas and stuff and there's something inside it. Um, is, yes. It, so what happens next? Does it all gather around the other thing? Does it break up? Do we get rings? What's what's the next the next chapter? Well, that's what we're trying to understand because this process of how the planets are forming and how our planet in our solar system are forming is not very well known. Mm-hmm. So that's why looking at this kind of object where we see the planet that's still embedded in its yeah, disk yeah. is important because basically we're like seeing it while it's forming. And um, that's a very important step to try to understand how our solar system is mm-hmm. forming. Do we do we have a good feel for the way this process starts? Because I, I can see now that you know you've got you've got something there that's quite large, yeah. presumably, yes. and and that's drawing in other material, you know, gravitationally drawing in other material yes. from the disk. But do we know why it starts? Mm-hmm. Like, wh- where's the where's the seed? Well, so we, no, it's, it's a very complex process and we don't really know. So there's two main theories to, to explain how planet forms. So the first one is called uh, gravitational instability, that if you have a very massive disk at some point, the, the disk will just collapse and mm. form a planet very quickly. But in that case, so disk is not massive enough, so we don't think that's how it's forming. And the other process is like uh, called the core accretion. So in the disk, you have like small what we call dust grains. It's a bit like sand grains in the disk, and they will start to to collide and stick together to get bigger and bigger and form like planetesimal and then small rocky planet. Yep. And at some point, if this rocky planet is massive enough in the disk, it will attract the um, the gas around it. But that's a very slow process. It takes millions of years so in the pla- in the case of the planet we discovered we don't think that theory can explain it either so mm. for this one we'd have no idea how yeah. it can be formed yeah. in and, practice the, the other part that i'm interested in here is the distribution of materials so like if you look at what saturn is made up of for yes. example relative to what earth or venus are made up of they're quite different materials mm-hmm. Do, do we have an understanding of how that occurs? Because I mean, you know, there, there's quite a, there's quite a large distribution there of, of different types of materials. And now that we have so much more information on Pluto, like again, it's like not just the inner planets. You know, there's something further out that has this weird sort of composition as well. Yeah, so it's it's a very complicated thing to extrapolate, in particular when we compare with very young objects, because we we don't have the the resolution to really map the, uh, the chemical gradients in the disk. We're mm. starting now with the ALMA telescope in Chile yep. uh, we, because there's 50 antennas with base lines of 18 kilometers so we can look f- at very small detail in the disk but it's only the beginning and so maybe in a few years we'll be able to, to extrapolate and compare our solar system to yeah. well, Will the new James Webb telescope 
help you guys, given that it's, uh, you know, it's not in the visible, it's in, it's in the Yeah, infrared. so it's, it's in the mid-infrared. Yeah. It's a telescope that's going to be in space with uh, six, uh, six meters inside. Mm. So it will be very important because it's uh, like um, a window that we can't observe mm. from Earth, or at least mm. very with difficulty. And, and, and the planet that's presumably there, I mean, you... you You've sort of described that rock in the stream scenario, but you can't see the rock. So how no, much? We don't see the how rock. much? How much do you know about the planet from so, what so you've observed? Yeah, so far we don't know much. What the only thing we see is the wave, mm. and this this is only dependent on the on the gravity exerted by the planet. So we only know its mass. It's about two Jupiter masses. Uh, and so we're trying to see the rock, so to see the planet, and we have programs to try to image. The mm. planet with uh, the VLT in Chile, the Very Large Telescope, uh, to to try to see if we can get more constraints like the luminosity of the planet to to better understand what kind of planet it is. Yeah. Now, the the telescope you're using, what, I mean, what sort of telescope is that? Um, are we are we talking visible spectrum analysis so, here, or so, yeah. so, so to detect that planet, we use uh, ALMA in Chile, and it, it's a radio interferometer, so we're uh, looking right. at wavelengths of uh, one millimeter. Yep. So is that that big giant one? Is it? The, the one that you often see in movies, like the, sh- the super big... No, no? It's, a, no it's a telescope. <laughs> there. You have 50 antennas. Oh, it's an array. Are, uh, an yeah, array. it's an array of uh, 50 antennas and uh, on, uh, at 4,000 meters in Chile. Yeah, no, that's cool. Um, so what, what's next? What, what are you going after? You, you, you've identified that it's there. Is, is there the possibility, you know, we have at least, well, eight, maybe nine planets in our solar system and a lot of other garbage. <laughs> um, I mean, is, is it likely there are other... Yes. Uh, other so, ones as well? So at the same time that we are publishing our results, there's a team of, uh, from America where they claiming that they're seeing some two other planets inside the disk, mm. um, closer in. So potentially it's a multiple planet system. Yeah. And uh, the next step is to try to, to do the same thing for different objects to see how typical this planet is, yep. if it's like this kind of very big planet very far from the star are common or not. Yeah. Because they're very different from our solar system, so it's it's going to also help us to understand if our solar system is typical or not, and mm-hmm. how it's forming. G- given you're not viewing it directly, could it be anything else? I mean, is there is there any other answer here when you do the modelling, or is it just like it has to be a planet? Well, we believe it has to be a planet because uh, the deviation in velocity that we see in the in the disk is very localized, mm-hmm. so it cannot be like uh, an external body that would perturb all the disk. It really has to be something that's very local in the mm-hmm. disk, and so it, and it's something that has to be two Jupiter masses. So okay, so big. You don't yeah. have many options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and how far out is it from the star? Like. So it's very far. It's 250 AU from the star, so it's 250 Whoa. times the distance between Earth and the Sun. Well, that's a fair distance. So it's a, yeah, it's a, so it's a very strange planet because it's very big and very far. Yeah. And yeah. that's where the density is very low, so it's very hard to form a planet so far from the hmm. star. So yeah, that, seem, that seems a bit, it's a, bit it's odd, a big isn't surprise, it? Yeah, 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 like because, well, presumably it's maybe it's dragged in all that material at some stage and the density is now low. Is that... Is that the explanation, or you know? Well, we don't know. Yeah, As I was bizarre. saying, there's two models to explain our planet mm. form, and in that case, none of them is working. So. <laughs> <laughs> so at least two models. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's very interesting because maybe it means there's, there's we need the new physics to explain yeah, how yeah. this planet is forming, or maybe this planet is very exceptional, and in that case, well, that's all right. Yeah, but it seems like every time we look in a different direction in the sky, we find something yeah. very exceptional at the moment. Like, yeah. there's so much new stuff coming out in the astronomy. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's, at the uh, very, yeah. It feels a bit like plate tectonics to me. You know, like, uh, time to out with the Apple Core model and in with the mm. new. Um, 
Christoph, it's it's great to see that this is happening here uh, with you guys at Monash and um, using these international telescopes. I mean, astronomy is one of the, the most international fields that there there is in terms mm-hmm. of, yeah. of use and, and structures and so forth. So congratulations on uh, this Thank paper. It's, it's great, great work. And um, hopefully, uh, you know, don't let those Americans find all the other ones. There's bound to be others in that system. <laughs> yeah, those get, probably get, should yeah, be. Yeah, get going on, <laughs> get going on those velocity models and make sure you, you find all the others because we, we don't want, you know, we don't want the Americans grabbing four out of five or something. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for chatting to us today on Triple R. Thank you very much. Dr. Christopher Bunte is uh, from the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University. We're going to take a short break, folks, and we'll be back in a moment with our final guest for today. Three. Triple Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We've got about 14 minutes to go before we have to hand over to eat it. And luckily, we have another guest in the studio, Associate Professor Vera Ignatovich. Which yes. I think I got not too bad, Vera, not too bad, is the co-group leader in the hematology research section of the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, a principal fellow in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Well, welcome back to Triple R. We have had you on before, um, which is uh, exciting. We, we're going to talk through some stuff that's going to take... People are going to have to listen carefully to this, because this is stuff that, for me, when I first heard this, I was like, whoa, hang on, this, this can't possibly be true. We're going to talk about pathology, because you, I mean, you work in, in the area of sort of pathology parameters and so forth, especially to do with kids. But can you talk us through, first of all, when, when I go and get some blood tests and the report comes back... What, what is the meaning of that report and the numbers and everything that I see? How is that interpretation done? Okay, so when you get your, the report back, you will have your values, and then in the brackets you have what are called the norms. So mm-hmm. what is the norm for the population? Now, the problem that we have in the, in the children's world or in the world of newborns and children is that we actually don't know very frequently what the norms are. Mm-hmm. And the norms that you actually see are often adult-based. Norms. Yeah. So even so, can I just stop you there though on the adult-based norms? So I mean, if you look at Chris KP here, yeah. and you look at me, <laughs> clearly one of us is normal, <laughs> or neither. <laughs> I think we've got two outliers but, there. <laughs> but how? I mean, yeah, we're, we're very, we're very different critters. How? How the devil can you compare the pathology mm. results between just the two of us, forgetting the rest of the population, and say my results on that day are? Within the normal range, how, how does who 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 determines what's normal? <laughs> so, uh, mm, well, what is done very frequently for adults is that large studies are carried out. So you you know you get a thousand people together, yep. let's say, and you collect blood from them, and you establish what is the norm based on that population, based on that representation of of the population. I guess. Mm. Now the problem is that it's relatively easy to get blood from adults and healthy adults but it's difficult to get blood from children in the first place and let alone healthy children children and healthy babies in particular so we are very fortunate um, in melbourne that we have access to healthy sample blood samples from perfectly healthy babies and the reason that we do that is that their parents are open quite open to us actually approaching them and saying your baby is perfectly healthy can we take some blood from the baby so that we can understand what the norm is Mm. so that then when it comes to the situation when there are children or babies that are in some kind of a, a problem situation we actually know how to 
how to deal we can detect that very quickly and you guys have got copious amounts of that numbing gel haven't you yes I yes love that stuff, the angel, numbing gel. angel cream yeah wow. they, <laughs> yes so it's anesthetic gel or angel yeah so it's, it's it is such an ageist yeah. society that adults can't use that yeah why would, is that <laughs> i would love some of that stuff next time i get, get an injection toughen up boys yeah. But why? Why do I have to toughen up? Yeah. <laughs> Just don't look. Turn yeah, it's, it's turn your head. That's a guarantee. Yeah. It's, it's, it's magic, that stuff. Um, so, yeah, so they're not feeling it generally. It's, it's quite non-invasive. As non-invasive as someone jabbing a needle in you can be. Yeah, well, um, it is. The, the, the good thing is that we have really well-trained pathology collectors, so yeah. blood collectors, and their specialty is collecting blood from babies. So mm. they are very, very good. And as you said, we put the anesthetic cream um, on first and yeah. we wait for about 20 minutes so the baby doesn't feel anything. But anyway, a lot of babies just sleep through mm. anything. Mm. They just want to sleep. That's all. Yeah. No, want. it's good. Because, you know, to be, to be, to be to be fair, the pathologists out there, most of them are really good at, at taking blood, but I've had the odd one where I've been mm-hmm. tempted to say, look, give it a year, I'll have a crack. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, but you guys at the Children's have, you know, I've had that done with kids there and the, they are really spectacular. So, I mean, obviously, um, when you have those normal ranges, though, I mean, what does that, I mean, how do you apply that in the clinical setting? Because... Presumably, you can't do it based just on age because these kids are all growing at different rates and different sizes and they have different parameters. And as, and as different as Chris, KP and I are, these kids are mm. much more different from one another. And, and if you start, you know, responding clinically to something being out of range where for that kid it really isn't, that can be dangerous. So how do yes. you, how do you do, deal with that? So, so uh, basically until now, um, normal ranges or reference ranges have been divided into you know, s- groups so mm-hmm. that, you know, you have a group, let's say, you know, two to four year olds, four to, four to six year olds and so on. But the difficulty in that is that if you have a child, for example, that's, you know, three years and 350 um, days old and then you see them again, you know, a, a couple of days later or a couple of weeks later, um, they have already crossed mm. into a different bracket, age bracket. So right. what we are trying yeah. to say is that reference ranges should be judged on a continuous basis, just like growth curves are. Yep. And that's a much easier way to deal with it. And it's also much easier to follow an individual on a curve and saying this is the norm for this individual and to see a variation mm. ver- versus grouping people. Yeah. Um, and how do you take into account babies who are born premature? Is it the day they're born or the day they were due? And how does, you know, how do your blood parameters change according to how long you were inside or outside? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. We also have access to babies who are premature, so from 32 weeks, um, but they are actually healthy. So, um, so we're trying to go back as, as back as we can to actually have the reference ranges for those babies as well. Um, and I guess that's a difficult for the clinicians to to try and make uh, determinations about whether a baby is well or unwell and that's why they are so specialized in what they do but i guess in, the more of these studies that we do the more we will understand what normal or what, what healthy is um, and in terms of normal is there any evidence that the cohorts are changing three times in terms of parameters mm-hmm. so you know someone who was born 20 years ago versus someone who was born in the last five years like are they looking similar or are actually cohorts different in terms of their parameters that, that's a very good question and that's something that i don't think that anyone has actually looked at because people kind of tend to do a study mm-hmm. in a, at a given point in time and i don't think that anybody is has actually looked back uh, and that that's a very very good point mm-hmm. the, the other thing 
thing that I'm curious about, I mean, given where you work, and there are a lot of children who are very severely ill and compromised in various ways in that setting, how do you... So so I, I do a suite of tests, and I test maybe 15 different things, and seven of them might be related to that particular illness, but the other eight are not. But presumably the normal range for those other eight for someone that ill is is different. How do you how do you factor that in and then know that oh one of those eight is problematic? Yes, well that's yeah that is a big problem and I guess the we know the norms we are trying to understand the norms for for children who are healthy and you're right in a, in a baby that you know that is coming from a bypass surgery or something like that they will have for some of the parameters they will their norm will be actually different mm-hmm. compared to the rest of the population. I guess the difficulty is that. The clinical, the tests that are ordered clinically, a lot of them don't really interpret very well what is going on with the patient. So that's a difficult, this, right, that's a right. difficulty yep. for the population to understand. And I guess it's, uh, for a lot of the clinicians, it's a lot, they, it, it's more about their understanding and, and they, they, the fact that they see a lot of uh, children or a lot of babies in this particular scenario so they can, they have some kind of, in in that knowledge about mm. what is actually going on, so the numbers can only tell you so much. But I guess this is where artificial intelligence, as good as it mm. is, it's going to get, will never actually take over yeah. because it actually takes a person to make decisions, and it takes a lot of knowledge and practice um, to actually make some of these decisions mm. that you can't make just based on numbers alone. Yeah. So so with that, one of the, the interesting um, elements, I suppose, is where we're using this new system you, you've been talking about, which is more like growth curves than just yeah. these sort of segmented areas you'll fall into on different days, you know, literally yeah. a week apart, yeah. potentially. Um, but presumably where we want to move to is the what's normal for me. I don't care about the rest yeah. of the population. I want you to monitor me so I get that personalised medicine approach where you can tell me, well, hang on, this is not normal for me. And, and as adults, when we go and see our GP and we look at our test results over, you know, especially when you get older and they start saying you should do this every now and then, uh, you know, they, oh, yeah, 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 that's gone down a bit. Um, you know, you get that. But we, we presumably need to set that up from the day we're born. So how are we going in terms of that? Because that's, that's obviously the ultimate goal. Yes, for sure. And that's something that's very, very difficult to do um, because you kind of see people, um, you, you don't follow people across mm. time. And, and the idea of wellness studies, and I don't know if you've come across those, it's, it's actually to monitor in, an individual across time. Yeah. And it will get easier as the technology is changing so that there are now devices, blood collection devices, where an individual can collect a blood sample on their own in a pen-like device. Yep. And they can almost, the idea is that they can almost mail it back mail it to a laboratory, the laboratory does the test, and then the GP gets the results, and you kind of have a, a time, a long, longitudinal mm. or a time-based uh, um, idea of what's going on with an individual. So these are kind of wellness studies. And I guess it's good to start collecting blood samples and doing this kind of measurements very early on because then you can detect disease quite yeah. early. Yeah. So at least the age-based disease, you can detect it very early. Because certainly we, we do it with optometry yeah. already. We do it with dental care. 
Um, and yet the parts of us that matter the most, mm. we, we don't do it. It just yeah. seems, uh, yeah, it seems like we're missing the mark a little bit there. So yeah. hopefully that's something we can, we can do in the future. Mm. Hopefully, yes. Well, Vera, it's fascinating to hear about that. I know we've got heaps of other stuff we could talk to you about, but we're unfortunately we're out of time. So, um, good luck with applying these new, new methodologies because it sounds like something that has really been out of step with reality for quite a while. And I suspect people, you know, parents see these reports, they see the little asterisk saying, oh shit, you know, something's yeah. out of range and it may not be really out of range at all. Yeah. It's, um, it's potentially not a problem. So thanks so much for chatting to us about you. this. And Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Folks, we're uh, almost out of time. Uh, you guys, uh, big day. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and GoGo on Through to Blah. Thanks so much for your time, folks. We will chat to you again next week. We're getting really close to the Radiothon, which is exciting for us. Um, but uh, in the coming weeks, we've got some amazing guests and people coming into the show. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Thanks so much for your attention today. Uh, we hope you learned something, uh, even if it was from Chris. Um, but, Apologies. And it, and it wasn't especially smutty, if it was especially from Chris. Chris. Uh, thanks for listening to Triple R and we'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.